Hello, welcome to Faith Seeking Understanding, the Pilgrim's Processing Edition on Friday, March the 19th, 2021. So here we are, and we are a large part of the way through Lent at this point. I hope that your Lent has been blessed and, and that you have maintained the habits that you took up at the beginning of Lent, if you actually took up any new habits one way or another of abstinence or of, um, of study and, and prayer. I hope that you've continued to maintain those things. But if not, then hey, just turn it around today. Get started all over again. It's never too late. I'm going to start with a bit of a prayer from um, the psalm, which is Psalm 102. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. It's always good to remind ourselves what kind of God we serve. And it begins with the fact that he created all things and that he, like them, is not of material substance that will wear out, that will go away. He will remain, and he will remain in the same form and substance as always because he preexisted all things. He was not a created being. He is the only essential being in the entire universe, according to Moses Maimonides, and I believe that we as Christians can affirm that. I don't believe we have to question it just because it came from a Jewish source. I believe that he is indeed the necessary being on which all other life of any sort depends by his grace and his goodness and his love. He has created us and sustains us and will persevere with us through the end. And so we put our trust in him because he is eternal. That the only thing in heaven and earth that's eternal is God the one true and living God. And so we can put our trust and our faith in Him and we can allow ourselves to sit under Him and know that, that our knowledge and understanding is limited while His is not. But at the same time, He's given us of the Holy Spirit that we can know something of the mind of God. So it's, it's a powerful thing to be His child and an important thing for us to be his child because his love for us is immense and it's eternal. He, he called us, he predestined us, Paul says, and we are his. And that's an important thing for us always to remember is, is that we belong to him. We are his treasured possession according to him. So when Jeremiah pronounces judgment against the people, He's pronouncing judgment against God's treasured possession, not because God chooses or desires to, to judge them or to throw them away. No, it's absolutely not that. The reason is because they have thrown him away. They have failed him. And they're his witnesses on the earth. And, and if his witnesses reject him and begin to, to witness in their lives to something else other than him, then then he's got to reconstitute that, that body because that's the purpose that the community in his name serves on the earth. We are to glorify him, and in glorifying him, then we're fulfilling the purpose for which our lives were first created and then redeemed. We were redeemed in order that we might glorify the one who redeems us. And that's the same with his people always because that's exactly what happened. He redeemed his people out of Egypt that they might become his treasured possession, that they might become a kingdom of priests serving him, that they might bring glory and honor to him, that the rest of the world that he created might come to know him 
because that's his great desire is for us. And so in our witness to him, we're revealing our love for him, that reciprocal love, but we're sharing it with others to say that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And so he doesn't want us to perish. He gave his son for us. And so no less did he redeem his people from Egypt. And, and so here he fusses particularly in Jeremiah 23, 1 to 8, he's particularly fussing at the shepherds, the ones, the leaders of Israel. He says, you've scattered my flock and driven them away and you've not attended to them. And he says, but I'll attend you for your evil deeds, and then I'll gather. You've scattered, and I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I've driven them, and I'll bring them back to their fold, and they'll be fruitful and multiply. I'll set my shepherds over them who will care for them, and they'll fear no more nor be dismayed. Neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. God says, You've, you the shepherds are responsible primarily for this. And it always starts at the top. Judgment always begins at the household of God, and it always begins with the leadership of God because teachers are, are um, held to a higher standard. Pastors, shepherds are held to a higher standard than the flock doesn't mean we're more important, but, you know, as it says, no man should desire to take teaching upon himself. And, and it's because God cares about the flock and he wants to have shepherds over them. And shepherds are no more important than the flock. But they have a different responsibility in the kingdom. And so God judges the shepherds and he says, I want to have good shepherds and I want my people back. And he's angry with the shepherds, and Jesus does the same thing when he says all through the last few chapters of Matthew before he's put to death, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You do things like tie up burdens on people that you yourselves are not willing to care to carry. You do all these things and make it harder for other people while you yourself live lives of ease and you get all the acclaim in the world but the reality is he's judging those people and those are the ones Jesus primarily judges are those people and then Jeremiah fortunately gives a different promise at the end of this and that's when he begins to speak about a savior I'll raise up for David a righteous branch and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and execute justice and righteousness in the land in his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely and this is the name by which you will be called the Lord is our righteousness and he is we plead the blood of Jesus. We claim his alien righteousness that's imputed to us so that we pass through judgment or judgment passes over us. We claim the righteousness of Christ. And Paul tells us in that passage today, he speaks of Jesus interceding for us who believe in his name. And so it's important that we get all this right, that we understand that he is our righteousness, that we, we stand in his righteousness. We are clothed in that alien righteousness, but God counts it to us through faith as righteousness, just as he did with Abraham. So in this John passage, we've got John 6, 52 to 59, and Jesus says the most controversial things here. It's controversial not just then, but now, because he says this. The Jews disputed and said, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And you would think that Jesus has an opportunity there to set the record straight and said, I'm talking metaphorically, but he doesn't. He doesn't do that at all. And I'm not sure that we have the freedom to 
interpret it that way either. And, and uh, it, it, we can dispute forever and ever about communion, but I really believe that here and in Paul's writings in 1 Corinthians 13, he elevates communion above what most Protestants think. I'm just going to be honest with you. I, I really do feel that way. I, but I'm not going to go as far as Roman Catholicism. I'm not going to go as far as to say that the bread and the wine take on some new form and become Jesus' body. But I think they are legitimately his body. And when we take the bread and the wine, which is important for us to continue to do, then then we need to recognize that we're putting holy things into ourselves, and we need to take seriously what's going on there. Paul talks about people getting sick. Well, if people can get sick from taking it unworthily, then they can be healed from taking it worthily. That's a corollary that works, actually. And so Jesus says, I say to you, truly, truly, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is too true drink. It's not that they didn't get metaphors. Remember, listen to the prophets. Metaphors are a constant way that God speaks to the people through the prophets. And so, and through the Psalms and through the Song of Solomon and all kinds of places, you see God using all kinds of different metaphors. And, and Jesus could be here, but I think he's saying a lot more than that. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks in my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said these things in the synagogue in Capernaum, where he had kind of begun his ministry. I mean, what started out as a healing in the synagogue at Capernaum now, man, becomes this thing where where people could find this incredibly offensive. They're not supposed to eat flesh. And he's talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Sounds a lot like cannibalism. Sounds pretty weird. <clears throat> but he means it. There's a metaphorical component to it. But But he's speaking truly about his flesh and his blood because that's what's given at Calvary. And so we've got to internalize all of that and make that our food and drink is the body and blood of Jesus. Whether that's in communion or whether it's just generically in life, we need to take that, that significantly and literally while at the same time understanding the metaphorical property of the statements. It's important for us to feed on the sacrifice of Jesus to feed in every single way it's possible to feed on the sacrifice of Jesus. And, and so it, it's necessary for us <clears throat> to consider that always because it's the most important thing in the world. You have to do that to have eternal life, he says. And it's hard to consider the, the earthiness of the statement that he's made there, but he means it for a purpose, because it grounds us in the incarnation. It grounds us in the importance of, of life and death, his life and death, but also our lives here and then in the world to come. And Paul talks about that, and he, he says very clearly that, that all things work together. All, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purposes. And that's when he begins to speak about for those whom he knew he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. 
And those he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So we've got to be working out the call in our lives in order to be justified. And then, you know, justification is all I really ever think about. But glorification is a step too far, right? I mean, to think about God glorifying us is more than we can ever actually think about or even imagine. And then he goes on to say, talk about the perseverance of the saints in some ways. If God's for us, who can be against us? He loved us enough that he didn't even spare his own son but gave him up for all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who's going to bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. So who's going to bring a charge against God's elect that God's not going to um, overcome? Who's to condemn, he says? Christ, the one who died? More than that, who was raised? He's at the right hand of God. He intercedes for us. He's on our side if we're on his side. And then he says, so who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? No. None of those things, Paul says. He says the only thing that separates us from the love of God is us. We have to allow those things to do it, but it's ultimately a choice on our own part to let those things separate us from God. No. In all things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. And he goes on and gives this wonderful list. I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen and hallelujah, right? I mean, he's right. He's absolutely right. And he's, he's repeating a lot of what Jesus says in this John 6 passage, that all that the Father gives him will come to him, and he won't lose any of those that that he has. Jesus is the one who hangs on to us for dear life. Our lives, not his. But he is hanging on to us, dragging us toward the finish line if need be, but hopefully walking arm in arm together as we move towards that finish line. Because that's what his desire is, to have that kind of relationship for us. He's already raised you from the dead because you were literally dead in sin. You were a dead person walking because of your sin. And then Jesus saved us from the wretched people we are, and he gave us life. He didn't save us by throwing us a life preserver. No, 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 no. We were dead. We were at the bottom of the sea, not breathing, no life in us. And he brought us back from there and gave us new life. We have absolutely been resurrected with him. Period, end of sentence. We were dead, and now we are alive. So sin didn't separate us. Nothing separated us from him because he was on that rescue mission as the great good shepherd to come and bring us back from the dead and back to life, and more than that, to give us eternal life as well. Amen. Hallelujah.